You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's go. Go! Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Aquarius Podcast. My special guest today is Michael Batnick, the artist formerly known as the Irrelevant Investor. I didn't realize you're no longer at that Twitter handle. Uh, Michael's written a fantastic book. He's the Director of Research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. We're going to talk to him right now. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? Good, Toby. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am an Acquire taste, so I hope that your listeners enjoy this conversation. I'm, sh- I'm, I'm very sure that they will. So... Um... You've got one of the better hero stories out there for how you got started in this business. Um, I know that it, it involved Josh, running into Josh. So can you just tell us what happened? Sure. So there's the longer version and the shorter version. I'll go a little bit longer than I n- normally do. I've told the story a bunch of times, but it is a good one. So in 2009-ish, 2010, I became aware of Josh Brown writing at the Reform Broker. And I took to it instantly because uh, a lot of the stuff that he was writing about at the brokerage industry, I saw a lot of the same incentive structure where I was working at an insurance company. Now, it wasn't quite as um, nefarious, but certainly people are motivated by how much they're paid and by the products that they're sold to, uh, paid to sell. So I was reading Josh on a daily basis and – I guess I was at the insurance company for just under two years and I left and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was hoping to break into the industry somehow, but I had no natural network and I didn't have the chutzpah to uh, do like what Jamie Catherwood is doing, which is just introducing himself to everybody and anybody. I just, I wish I had that in me, but I lacked self-confidence and I had nothing to offer. My, my resume sucked. My, my, uh, my college experience and my educational experience was lacking. So I, I thought, you know, I had very little to offer. Um, and so I had been trading on my own probably for about a year and a half, two years, had very bleak job prospects and was basically ready to throw my hands up in the air and just say, all right, I guess I'm just going to be like a barista at Starbucks or get a job at a retail. Like I just, I didn't know. Uh, it, it was not, it was not a great time for me. And I'm sitting down for game three of the 2000 and. 11 no i'm sorry 2012 um the knicks were playing the heat so lebron and wade and bosh were in town and it's game three and obviously the knicks were, were down 0-2 but um i was super excited about the game and then as i'm sitting down i get an email like i remember it it was literally as i was sitting down i had an email from my last job opportunity like the last one and the guy said sorry i can't help you so i'm sitting down and i'm just like oh um and so the knicks were getting buried it was the third quarter, and I remember this very clearly. Mario Chalmers hit a three to put the heat up by like 18 points going to the fourth. And I said, F this, I'm out of here. Ordinarily, I would never have left. But I was in such a pissy mood from that email that I just decided, you know what, I'm out of here. I just My friend's like, where are you going? It's playoffs. And I just said, I'm out. And so on the way home, I was on the train. This was a Friday night. 
probably 10.30, and I'm scrolling through Twitter on my BlackBerry, and I see Josh Brown tweeting about uh, how old he feels because uh, Eminem's daughter or Kurt Cobain's daughter or whatever is 17 years old, something like that. So we pull up to my, my train station. My phone died. And the reason why I say that is because if it didn't die, I probably would have been walking with my head buried in the phone. So my phone dies as we're pulling up to the train station, and I walked right past Josh. I knew we grew up in the same town. I didn't realize that he was on the same train as me at that time, obviously. And so I felt like, holy shit, this is my moment. I, so I basically tackled him, and Josh was nice enough to give me some time, and that's how I met Josh. So you, uh, had, you had you started the blog at that time? Uh, no. No, I was, I was basically day trading. I thought that I was like doing Ben Graham style uh, investing, but uh, one day I walked into TD Ameritrade's branch and they were like, "Oh, Mr. Batnick, so good to see you." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> and so they told me that I spent twelve thousand dollars on commissions in two thousand and eleven, and I was like, "No, no, no, maybe you have the wrong statement. This isn't me." So they showed me, and I was like, "Whoa!" So that was really eye opening. And I think I had been keeping a journal, but I didn't realize to the extent that I was turning over my portfolio. So, so what was the what was the uh, impetus for launching the blog? That's just something. If you join Ritholt, it's like you just expected to, to to start a blog. So when I started writing, uh, it was 2012, and the first thing that I wrote was totally inappropriate. It was basically me trashing my former employer at the insurance company. And the person who ran the company was like, yeah, I, I get it, but like you can't do this. Um, and so I was just – I was fortunate to to be given a long runway where nobody was reading what I was writing and I was totally fine with that. It's not like I was like, oh, how come I'm not getting any traffic? I had no delusions of grandeur. I knew that my writing sucked, but I, but I felt like I wanted to continue it. Um, because I didn't want to go down the path of be, becoming a CFP. I had already done started down the road of being a CFA or a, a, a charter holder. So I just thought, like, why not? Barry and Josh are doing it. I guess I don't really remember why. I like I was like, oh, I got to do this, but I just I tried it and it just happened to work out. Do you find it useful to kind of document what you're thinking at the time? Do you ever go back and look at it years later and think <laughs> I've changed my mind? Or oh yeah, well oh in terms of the blogging stuff yeah. Um, yeah, there's some things, I guess this sounds ridiculous, but I don't have like, I really, there, there are, there are things that I have very strong opinions about and things that I really don't feel that strongly about. Like, believe it or not, I, I don't care how you construct a portfolio. I think there's a million ways to skin the cat. I think that like the most important thing is just finding what you're comfortable with. So I don't, I certainly don't think that like active management is dumb or you're an idiot for paying fees for, you know, to try and beat the market. If that's what you want to do, and let's say, you know, obviously it could work out and you can beat the market, or let's just say that you don't beat the market, you trail, you know, you're invested and you you, you lag by 80 basis points a year, who cares? I think the, the the real problem is like jumping in and out and trying to time the market. I think that's much more destructive to to wealth creation. But to answer your question, I would I have gone back periodically and read my journal, my trading journal, and it's an amazing abomination of ridiculous thoughts and ideas. Well, well, and that, that actually got me away from banging my head against the wall because I was doing it in real time. And I, I remember going back and reading what I wrote and just thinking, this is ridiculous. These thoughts are ridiculous. This is not how the market works. And I'm very indebted to, to stock twits uh, in particular because I saw people 
posting every single day. I was unemployed. I was I was trading. So this is all that I was doing. And I saw people and I'm like, wait a minute. I know you're lying because I, 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 I read what you write and I saw what you said yesterday and the day before and I know that you're full of shit. And it wasn't just one person. It was like a lot of people. So it didn't take long for me to smell the roses. Like not that I think I'm a genius or anything but like I'm not a complete idiot and – I just I'm very grateful that I woke up very quickly to to the realization that the market is a really 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 hard to beat. I think that like people understand that and they accept it but they pay lip service to it because they still trade way too frequently. And then like later on I came to the realization that in order to grow your nest egg and to have your money work for you, you don't need to beat the market. Yeah, 100%. When you said you're a, a, a Graham-style investor, what, what were you doing? Were you looking for net nets or were you just looking for undervaluation or what were you Oh, to I, was totally, I was totally kidding. By the way, that's sort of why I call myself the irrelevant investor because I did read all the Ben Graham stuff, but I wasn't doing any of that. I was looking at PE ratios and thinking that that meant something. Well, I, I think you know, it's one of the funny things. That I remember that period vividly because that was when I started my own blog. I started in 2008, nine, and you know, those Graham net nets just don't come out very often. They're like cicadas. They come out every seven years or so. And when they come out, like I was buying a lot of them and they do like there's a lot of volatility both ways. So I, I traded quite a lot getting in and out of positions also because they're very small. So I just thought it's possible like you could be doing a lot of trading. Although I was using yeah. like first trade. Yeah, I, I don't even know I, if I it still day, exists. It's like $6 I was, day trading. I was day trading based on tangible book value. But uh, to your point, like Ben Graham wrote two pieces, I think, in Fortune uh, in 1931 about – how basically two-thirds of American companies were worth more dead than alive. And obviously, those opportunities have long since vanished. Yeah, they, they come out – come, I mean, that was, that was also close to a market bottom. So that, they yep. were, that, that was an extreme time. I think like there were 600 issues. 200 of them were uh, – or some portion of them were net current asset values. Like 50 of them were sub-cash they had in the, in the bank, which is just crazy times. But that happens occasionally. So I find – Benjamin Graham uh, is an interesting. Um, I hadn't quite. It makes sense because he wrote the Intelligent Investor, and naturally that's where the irrelevant investor comes from, which I hadn't kind of appreciated until I read your book. So he's the first guy who you um, discuss in in your book. What, can you tell us a little bit about him and his uh, what's his what's his bad trade? So I remember reading the Intelligent Investor in two thousand and probably two thousand nine. And I had no like investing background. I did not grow up reading Barron's or anything like that. Like my dad is a dentist, and my mom, you know, stayed at home um, most of my life. Um, but so I remember reading that, and particularly the part about Mr. Market. I remember being so excited that like I read it to my mom because I was like, oh my god, and and she was like, what? What is this? But I just had to share it with him because I really was like a light bulb moment, and then. But I didn't really take that to the next step. I didn't really – because I didn't know anything. So I couldn't look at a balance sheet and make heads of tails of anything. So anyhow, to answer your question about what Ben Graham's bad trade was, he – so he ran a a partnership and going into the crash, he was actually positioned very conservatively. Uh, I think he had like – 29. Yeah. He had maybe 70 percent of his assets in cash and money market. I'm sorry. Not money market. And preferred stocks. And he – Avoided a lot of the the carnage, but he went in too early, and I think he had like a seventy five percent drawdown, yeah, which is probably about market, right? Maybe maybe he beat the market. Yeah, no, he did, but I guess the the point of that chapter was like, this is literally the guy that wrote the book on value. 
He missed the crash. He saw value. But the point was that only tells you so much. You don't know when the tide is going to turn. And timing things, certainly based on valuation, is supremely difficult, probably not worth people's time. Well, it's one of the crazy things I find about reverse compounding. So particularly when you're trying to time the market and particularly for value investors. So if, you, if, the, if a stock's down 80% and you jump in down 80% and then it proceeds down 90%, you're down 50%. Like it, and that's, that's a big drawdown. Sure, it's not, it's not 90%, but it's still half of, your, half of whatever you've put into that position. So um, yeah, I, I, timing the market, timing the stock market is impossible, but timing individual stocks is also impossible. I'm 100% in agreement there. When uh, one of the things that I did repeatedly was I thought that stocks that got cut in half were like a good value, right? You're, you're taught – if you know nothing else, you know buy low, sell high. And so I was bottom fishing for uh, a living. Obviously, I'm not making a living doing it. But I think what I was doing was I was, I was trading but I had like sort of a – I don't even want to call it a valuation mentality because that's like an insult to value investors. But I was just my, – my timeline didn't match up at all. I was like trying to you know do uh, – catch a bottom and it's just ridiculous. Like wait a minute. You think a, a company or a stock is cheap and I wasn't even thinking about the fact that these are actual businesses. But let's just say that I was. OK. So this business is cheap and I want to flip it in, two, in, ten, in 10 trading days. Yeah. Might, might be too short. Uh I know that a lot of value investors like to hunt on the 52-week lows list. Like that's the that's the place where you find stuff that it's as cheap as it's been for the last year, so it makes some sense. But then Wes Gray pointed out to me years ago that that's all all the companies with the worst momentum. So you're buying these low momentum stocks, which like that's if you're if you're constructing a long short momentum portfolio, that's your short portfolio. <laughs> you know that's the short portion of it. So that's not a good place to hunt. Like it's not the fact that it's down a lot is kind of meaningless. You want to look at it relative to its intrinsic value. Yeah. So when I, I so once in a while I like will tell myself that I could probably trade okay, and then you know I smack myself. I'm like you're an idiot. No, you can't. But I've had young people who do want to start trading. And I think that I encourage young people to trade because nobody, no 18 or 21 year old is going to, I forget what the age is. Nobody's going to open up an account and buy the Vanguard total stock market. It's just not realistic. Nobody does that, nor should you. Um, because maybe you find out that you really love to invest or trade, which is nothing wrong with that. Uh, more likely you find out, huh? Okay. I get it. This is hard. I don't want to waste my time doing this. But one thing that I, the one piece of advice that I always give is, and I think John Borman said this. He said, if you want to buy a stock that you want to go up, buy one that's already going up. And I think that is really easy to understand. But in practice, it's hard to buy a stock at a 52-week high list, right? Like, but that's but that's where I don't want to say the value is, but that's that's what works. Yeah, I mean that's that's momentum trading, right? And that that's momentum investing, and that that certainly does work. I mean, you can be a value investor too. You don't have to buy it off the. You don't have to buy it going up, but you just got to know what you're doing when you're doing it. If you're buying momentum, then you got to expect that it'll fall apart faster than a value trade. Like value can work for five years. You stick yep. value on, you get the bulk of your return in the first years, but you still get some as you go down the. I, I, I'm also a big believer in having uh, written rules, and I had no such rules when I was doing it, but. Uh, I just think that if you're making decisions in the heat of the moment, um, you're setting yourself up for disastrous failure. 
And I, I, I think that that's true. And I don't even care necessarily what the rules are. They could be, you know, rule like dumb rules are better than no rules because I think you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. At least I did. What I would do, this is sort of my MO. One of the things that I did consistently was I would buy a stock on a breakout and it would run two or three days and then I would sell it on the retest because I didn't have the discipline to sell on the way higher. And then I got scared that my profits were running, you know, were being ripped away from me. So, um, Around the same time, Benjamin Graham is writing his Intelligent Investor across the uh, Atlantic. John Maynard Keynes is also going through a similar sort of pain because he was running various different portfolios. And he was bailed out uh, by his dad a, mm-hmm. a couple of times. And he was also pretty wealthy from the books that he had written. So, um, And he eventually got to this point where he was like this very Buffett-like buy for the very long term, buy good businesses, just concentrate into the ones you like to hold. But what was his big... What was his big mistake? Uh, well, similar to Graham, he also got annihilated in the depression, like you know, basically everybody else. I think the one of the most impressive things about the Keynes story is that, by all accounts, he was sort of an asshole, or at least I shouldn't say that he had a large ego, which is understandable given the contributions he made to the monetary uh, world. Um, and so he had the mental flexibility. The guy is basically the father of macroeconomics and he's realized, huh, I can know – I can have all of the uh, important inputs. I can know what interest rates are in in Great Britain and I can know what currencies are doing in Brazil and I can know what stocks are here and bonds are there and come on, whatever, whatever. doesn't matter. Because what he realized very, very early on was how important behavior is and the whole newspaper thing that he did where if you're judging a beauty contest, it's not who you think is the prettiest girl. It's who you think the average opinion is going to be. And he realized that that's just a loser's game, that nobody can know what the average opinion expects the average opinion to be. So I think that he was doing the second level thinking like literally 70 years before Howard Marks started talking about it. And so to your point, he realized that the way to be a successful investor for him was to value businesses, good, solid businesses, and just hold on for the ride and let compounding do its magic. Very Buffett-like. Well yep. before Buffett existed. And he was doing it at the same time as Graham was. It's interesting to read some of the stuff that he writes at that time because he does sound very Buffett-like and Buffett refers to him a few times in his letters. Yeah, he's definitely one of – I think – I forget what chapter it is. It's chapter 12 or chapter 11 in, uh, in his book is – definitely like one of the best things ever written on investor psychology and i encourage everyone to read it if they haven't already yeah i agree it's excellent so another one that i really enjoyed i don't know if he falls into the category of super investor but mark twain yeah this was probably i think this was one of the most uh fun people to research because i had no idea what a lousy investor he was i guess i just knew him from like cuck finn and whatever and but he was an ab- it was almost like a, a cartoon uh, of how bad he was. It was like you couldn't believe it. And he was obsessed with entrepreneurs and was basically, I guess, the worst venture capitalist of all time. And not only did he do that, but he also dabbled in the stock market and he just threw good money after bad and doubled down repeatedly and got involved in like the, the gold rush in, in California. And I, I I've said this before, but – if he were on Twitter today, he would absolutely be the king of social media. I don't think that there's ever been a more clever, uh, wittier writer than him. The best one-liners. Yeah, by far. And to- a lot of them were about investing, actually. 
Yeah, I agree. He's he's hilarious. Um, there are two big names that you have on this list: Buffett and Munger. Um, why why include their worst investments, and and what 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 do you sort of learn from their worst investments? So the Munger one, somebody pointed out to me that he didn't really make a mistake, and I was like, huh, yeah, good point. I guess he really didn't. He, so the Munger one was he uh, in his partnership. I think in the 74 to 75 bear market, he lost 50%. And he really one, – one of his investors in particular basically bought – came in at, at the top and sold Munger at the low, which is kind of funny. But the really bad investment that he made – and again, not necessarily a mistake. It's just you know it's, it's what he does – is this company Blue Chip Stamps, which I think became the conduit to like the Buffalo Evening News – and maybe even provided the cash flow to buy C's candy. I can't exactly recall, but that turned out to be like an okay thing. So the Munger thing, maybe I would I would like a mulligan on. Uh, the Buffett one, he, Buffett's made a ton of mistakes, and I think that like I actually had there was a bunch to choose from, whether it was the airlines or Wells Fargo, not today, but in the in the early 90s. Um, and I chose the one that he just has highlighted, the the Dexter Shoe Company, which he bought I think for like 400. 30 or 450 million dollars, which is in stock, in Berkshire stock, which is now the equivalent to uh, like six and a half, seven billion dollars. Oh. And not only, not only did he use Berkshire stock, but some of the quotes did not age well. Like he was, I mean, he was very overconfident in his assessment of Dexter because he had other, he had recent success with other shoe companies. So the point of writing this this book was like, I, I just wanted to humanize these people. To, to show people that everyone makes big mistakes and it's it's sort of part you know it's part of the game if you want to play it you got to accept the losses and I, I just think that we learn a lot more from failure than from success like there's been a million things written about how Buffett is the greatest and uh, you know on down the line I think it's one of the interesting things about studying the records of great investors like this is that you see how often they do make mistakes but they still somehow figure out how to thrive and make a lot of money despite the fact that they're making mistakes. And that's something about the way that they construct their portfolios. They're never sort of super concentrated. They're not using leverage that's going to kill them. Are you, do you draw any other lessons from the guys who've been successful despite those big mistakes? Yeah, I think that they're, uh, they're pretty much all behavioral driven. Um, certainly in the case of like Stanley Druckenmiller is a perfect example. When he basically, he, he went all in at the top. And somebody said, "What did you learn?" And he said, "Nothing. I knew what I knew what not to do. I just I couldn't couldn't help it." Jesse Livermore, who is the single most quoted trader of all time, uh, every single time he made and lost a fortune, he came away with like these almost like soliloquies, just beautiful language on what an idiot he is, uh, and he couldn't even follow his own rules. So I think people have a pretty good idea how to lose weight doesn't mean that you're going to have a six pack like we know what to do we know what not to do but knowing what not to do and not doing it are two separate things yeah the problem's not intellect it, it the problem's not not knowing what you should do it's being able to actually do what you should do which is a totally different thing right which is why i i firmly believe that there is not a i mean i, I don't think that you could be a super investor without having a high iq but 
you could be a very average sort of intelligence person and do just fine in the market. I, I think that it's really more of your temperament and your personality. And some are more, you know, better suited to it than others. Myself, I was just way too emotional. Um, not that I would like stew over my losses, but just again, I didn't have any rules. And I was making decisions based on how much I was up or how much I was down rather than following any sort of process. One of the uh, really interesting people in there, Benjamin Graham, just to go back to Graham, because you know I'm a deep value guy, so I, I'm a big fan of Graham's. The interesting thing for me about Graham is he had those losses and that sort of led to him codifying value and writing security analysis. And he wrote those articles uh, for Forbes or for Fortune. I third. say Fortune, but it might be Forbes. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I, I can't remember okay. either. It doesn't matter. That, but they're, they're they're fantastic articles. But what what I take from it is, and I, I, I've never actually done this study separately, but I've I've read that Graham's record would have underperformed the market, but for his investment in Geico. I'm so glad you said that. I was just about to say that, and I almost wrote this blog post, but I didn't want to get eviscerated. <laughs> uh, now you can't take it away from him because he, you know, he, he did it. He, he did it, <laughs> but. Truly, and I think even with that, and I don't want to say he only beat the market by 2% a year because very few people have done that, but you're right. Ex-Geico, it was a mixed bag, and uh, he said shortly before his death in 1976, I believe, that he didn't really believe in security analysis anymore because too many people were doing it, uh, and obviously that's been repeated by you know a million people, um, but he, he was a very fascinating, fascinating person, and he had – uh, as anybody who's read knows that he had like very wide uh, ranging interests outside of finance. Outside of his marriage too. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess that, that rubbed off on his students as well. True. Um, yeah. So I, I, I really enjoyed the book and I love the focus on mistakes rather than successes because everybody knows the successes, but it's the, I honestly do think that you learn a great deal more from, from the mistakes. Does that, does any of that sort of flow into your investing now? How do you do you? Has it like made you diversify more? Do you do you not use leverage or what do you do? Absolutely, it has. So, for our clients and for myself, I am a big believer in diversifying and not just across assets but across strategies. So we've included a a fairly simple trend following model into our uh, process because I do think that the idea that somebody can sit through a 50% equity drawdown, even if it's not you know off their portfolio, I just think that's a really hard ask of people. I don't think that we're equipped to deal with that. So so that has certainly shaped how we uh, how we view our portfolios. What, what's your can you talk about the, the what, what do you use 200 day or just year on year? Or something? The, I'm honestly not even that. So we we sort of data mine the hell out of this. And where I came out is I don't really have a firm opinion that one is better than the other, that the 200-day is better than the 190-day, that the 10-month is better than the 9-month. So for that reason, we have sort of uh, diversified across signals within that portfolio. Oh, that makes sense. That's like uh, Corey Hofstein, Butler Philbrick well, type approach. Yeah, but but like with a much lower IQ. <laughs> well, you can always lean on their research. Right? That's what we I have. like to do. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that, that's an interesting. Uh, there's something interesting about the way that the stock market moves that makes the uh, those 200 day. Like I'm a, I, I I think a lot of value guys find it very hard to accept that those moving averages do anything to the portfolios, but they definitely do truncate the big losses. But then they lead to these long periods like now where you slightly underperform because you get whipsawed 
on a regular basis. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm fine with that. To me, that's like the premium that you pay. You don't want your house to blow up. Right. You know, you're not hoping to collect like, oh man, if the market was only down 40%, this would have looked a lot better. But who wants that? Because the bulk of our money is invested in strategic asset allocation, buy and hold type investing. So uh, I just think that, again, I, I don't really care what line you draw because I think the, the simplest explanation for how markets work, and this is probably why you know, it sounds like you could just reduce everything into something so simple, which is why people that actually analyze businesses probably get so frustrated, understandably so, is that rising prices attract buyers and falling prices attract sellers. And obviously, there's a little bit more to it than that, but that's pretty much how markets work. And it doesn't matter if it's the market for um, sushi, you know, for giant tuna or the market for sneakers or the market of stocks or bonds. I think that's pretty much how it works. And by using some sort of moving average, it just smooths out the noise and it usually not you, you know, it tries tries to get you on the right side of the trade, particularly when markets are falling apart. And one of the things that I really like about this type of investing is that a lot of the alternative strategies, the black swan type things, and not even the ones that are so tail heavy, but just the alternative strategies that are that are pitched to be non-correlated. I think those are very difficult for investors to stick with, particularly because a lot of them can't survive a bull market, as we've seen over the over the last decade. And right. so I think that that this strategy allows you to have you know, obviously you're not going to beat the market and up market and you might not even beat the market when it goes down. That's possible too. But I think it like you understand the mechanics um, and we know all of the warts and everything. So it gives us the hopefully the wherewithal to really uh, encourage our clients to stick with it when it is having a rough time. The only the only time that I'm aware of that the 200 day really uh, didn't work as a hedge was in 87 just because it was so fast. The drawdown well, was so fast. It actually did work in 87, but the 10-month and the 40-week did not. That, you're right. Okay. So that's the, the most popular version of it, which is the – that's the 200-day is the 10-month. Is that the 40-week as well? Is that the same? Yeah, but the, but the thing is like who the hell was using this in 87? You know what I mean? Like, well, Paul Tudor so Jones said that he was. Well, yes, but he was – I think he was doing Elliott Wave and he literally – lined up the crash of 29 onto 87 which is so funny because now we like mock that but he actually did it and, and you know good for him it worked uh but i think that uh just you have to have realistic expectations you just have to understand your strategy i think you have to understand yeah. what what it's going to do so sometimes you're going to get whipsawed and in a long bull market whatever you use whether you're hedging with volatility or hedging with what whatever you're using hedging with a 200 day you're going to want to perform a little bit, and that's the cost of insurance. That's what it costs you to, to not wear the entire drawdown. Well, whatever you're doing, however you're managing risk, like a bull market makes a mockery of risk management. That's what it does, particularly with these V bottoms. It's like just killer. Uh, obviously, CTAs have had an extraordinarily tough time. Is the strategy broken? I don't know enough to say, but it's, it, it literally says that it's not correlated. And guess what? In bull markets, people want positive correlation. They want negative correlation in bear markets. But if something existed, if a strategy like that existed, it would raise $7 trillion and then it would no longer work. <laughs> yeah, good point. That's a very good point. So I uh, have read your blog post for a long time. I often get the feeling that you're maybe a little bit more bearish than some of the other guys at, at Ritholtz. Is that fair? <laughs> or is that Am I mislabeling um, I'll take it. Thank you. That's not, uh, that's not true? I mean – I'm generally an optimist, but if you mean if by bearish you mean in the camp of expecting low returns, yeah, definitely. I'm definitely in that camp. I mean, I don't know really anybody who isn't, but 
the thing is that a I've been probably in that camp for I don't know three four years now, um, but not to the point of idiocy where I say okay we have lower expected returns based on you know just basic sort of math. Therefore, you should time the market or go to cash or anything like that because let's just say that we do have lower expect. Let's say that the the expected returns are actually lower realized returns, and so stocks instead of doing fifteen percent like they've done over the last five years, let's say that they do five or six. Well, if you're jumping in and out when expected returns are lower and they actually are lower, then the margin for error is much lower. Like a bull market is is kind of more forgiving um, in certain respects, maybe not on the risk management side, but I guess I, I don't want to be misinterpreted that I expect lower returns and therefore I think you should do an overhaul of your strategy. I've never said anything like that because like we've, you know, one of the best lessons in this bull market, I think, is that you know, valuation is just not a good timer. It's how you set no. expectations. So if you're doing any sort of financial planning, which is what we do, we incorporate lower expected returns. And if our clients can survive that, then our plan should be bulletproof. But it doesn't mean that you make wholesale changes to your portfolio. You just set the bar lower. And if you jump over it, fantastic. What, what are the implications for lower expected returns? You need to save more. S- save more, spend less, work longer. I mean, those are like the hard conversations, and quite frankly, those are the those are the real conversations that matter. That's where we add value. It's not, it's not because we have the best asset allocation or the most sophisticated trend following model. What What do you guys? Uh, what, what do you What do you use as your? Are you DFA? Is that? We use. We're not. No, we use. I mean, yes, we do use them, but it's not it's exclusively. All, which Which? Oh no 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 no. We use uh, Vanguard iShares. We're pretty. We're We're pretty uh, provider agnostic. One of the names that really jumped out from your book was Chris Sacker, because I think that he's quite distinctly different from the other names there, because he's VC and he's much more modern. Uh, or his uh, so just a little bit about Chris Sacker. Uh, yeah. So one of the hardest parts about investing is that I think like regret is the most the most poisonous sort of uh, I don't know what the word is, but it's just it just it's it's terrible for the investor psychology because. There's always going to be something that you regret. Either you bought something and it's not doing well, and then even probably more true is that there's always something going up that you're like, shit, I, I, I knew it. You know, obviously you didn't know it, but you fooled yourself into thinking that you knew it, whether it's whether it's um, Amazon or Bitcoin or whatever it is. There's always something that that can make you feel like a real idiot. Um, and uh, you know, and my whole, basically my whole entire, uh, all that I write about is how hard investing is. Because I just think that somehow it's still un- underappreciated how difficult investing is. Again, even just buying just buying SPY and holding it forever, really, really hard to do. Even though you'll do better than most people over the next 40 years, you can't do it. Um, so, so Chris Saka is, I think from all accounts, the most successful – ran the most successful VC fund ever. Had returns, I don't know, 20,000%, something like totally obscene. Uh but he, like everybody else, is not perfect, and he not only missed three of the most successful IPOs, um, or, or you know, private companies that did IPO, but he actually said no to them. And I think the companies were uh, Dropbox, Airbnb, and Snapchat. And he was talking to he was on two podcasts. He was on with Bill Simmons, and he was on with Tim Ferriss, I think, talking about. 
how, uh, again, he, he literally, he was pitched and he had a reason for why he didn't want to invest in all of these. And that's one of the permanent frustrations of investing is that there's always going to be something that either you, you know, it's an error of omission, like Munger and Buffett regret not investing in, in Costco. And there's been other stocks that they just missed. But there's, there, that's like, that's a, that's a permanent source of frustration. And I think that you just have to get over that. Uh, the idea about, you know, the name of the game is not to be, not to be perfect because you're not going to be. It's just to, for, for the average person, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to be good enough. And that's what you should strive for. One of the things that Chris, Chris Sacker in particular illustrates and I think VC portfolios do is that there's that tale of returns where it's really only one or two. In a 10-stock portfolio, it's one or two that sort of deliver the very vast bulk of your returns. We saw that with Graham. And VCs are really, really reliant on that. So it really must gall them to miss those, those two or three home runs in a portfolio that's sort of game-changing. Yeah, they don't come along too often. I think that it makes me wonder whether that Y Combinator approach where you put, you know, they have like a $10 million portfolio, for example, it's, I'm sure it's more than $10 million, and then they put $100,000 into like 100 companies. So you sort of, you, 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 your tail is a little bit more granular. So you get, instead of getting three, you get sort of, maybe you get 10 times that number, maybe you get 30 that kind of work out. Yeah, and I'm sure that there's probably a lot of funds that were all for 100. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true too. It's it's hard. I mean, that's the that's the quant approach to investing when they're when they're looking at, you know, so a regular portfolio for a value investor might be ten or thirty positions, and then a quant portfolio might be like a thousand positions or five hundred positions or something like that. Do you, do you, uh, do you think that by investing in ETFs you're kind of capturing that diversification to grab both the upside and the, the what types of ETFs? Just just investing rather than investing directly. So you're investing in funds rather than individual names. Does like that... give me an example. Well, if you're investing through an ETF, so you, you have some sort of, you have like a Vanguard total market or you have some view on, you know, you want to, you want exposure to value, you want exposure uh, to momentum. Okay. I understand. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that's why investing in, in index funds work because I think research affiliates put out a thing that like by investing in index funds, you're systematically buying high and selling low. Uh, I don't really think that's necessarily the case. I mean, for example, GE was a top five holding in the S&P 500, and now it's whatever, the 70th biggest, I have no idea. But that didn't drag down the index. Um, Facebook got added to the S&P 500 at a, again, I'm making this up, a $200 billion valuation or $100 billion valuation, 150. Now it's 500. So I think that indexing does allow you to ride the wave. And I know it's not, I think Aaron Stanhope wrote a post that like, it's not really a momentum fund. Fine. We could argue with the nomenclature, but yes, I think that it does allow you to have exposure to all of the biggest winners and the biggest winners by and large more than offset the biggest losers. And if you're not in the biggest winners and you're just, you know, throwing darts, um, it's going to be, you're going to have trouble because, uh, uh, Henry Bestenbinder, I think was his name, wrote a post that, all of the returns came from like 4% of the listed stocks. It's Microsoft, it's Apple, it's Exxon, you know, you know the names. And the other 96% were ultimately losers. Yeah. Now, you could take the flip side and say, well, you could do great by just screening out the losers. And I'm fully on board with that. I think that there's probably a lot of great quant processes that just try and get rid of the shit. And that's, a, you know, I'm sure that's a perfectly reasonable approach. But most of the time, I'm trying to help like the average person because I know how difficult this can be. 
So that's that's who I consider to be my audience. It's one of the crazy things is how that it, it is crazy that the index is so hard to beat. When you look at the, I mean, if you, you wouldn't construct a portfolio probably the way, you wouldn't look at the index and then construct a portfolio the way the portfolio is constructed. But if you like, point. Greenblatt uh, has this book that almost nobody read called The Big Secret for the Little Investor, where he compares, it came out like after the little book. Okay. It was a great Yeah, I never book. heard of that one. He talks about smarter indexing in that book. And so one of the things he says is that the value weight, you know, the market capitalization weighted index um, loses about 2% a year to an equal weight version of it just because it's overweight, all of this stuff that's expensive and then it's underweight, the stuff that's that's cheaper, which, you know, if you are if you believe in value, then you'd, you'd prefer to do it that way. Then he advocates for what he calls, well, he talks about research affiliates, fundamental index in there. Yep. And he says that then performs like another 2% better than the equal weight version because it's getting... I'm sure, it did. I'm, sure, I'm sure that it did in the back test. Well, that's the thing. It's, uh, it's been one of those periods of time where that's not been true. So the equal weight yeah. has underperformed the, the market capitalization weight. It's just one of those things that the market, as soon as you find something logical <laughs> and, and it kind of makes sense, like it's just moments away from underperforming for an extended it, period of time. I don't think anybody would look at the ideas behind fundamental indexing. Oh, okay. So you want to weight a company based on its actual economic footprint versus just what the market ascribes a price to. Who would say that's a bad idea? But the market is just relentlessly uh, humbling. And again, I just I think you have to be an absolute moron to keep doing the same things and expecting a different result. And so I did that for like, you know, two years, I guess. And uh, again, not that I like am the smartest person at all, far from it, but like I just I think that I'm very, very thankful that to have an early appreciation for how difficult it is to beat the market. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's an awesome thing to get at, at any stage, right? If you like, I've been a value investor really since writing Greenback came out in two thousand and eight. Basically, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine outperformed pretty materially. Like since two thousand and ten, it's just been increasingly <laughs> depressing. You know how hard it as, is to do. As Ramp Capital would say, "Thanks for playing." It's rough, man. It's it, it's <laughs> tough for value guys out there, and and that's why I think value guys complain about like. You know, well, look at the look at the index. You know, I wouldn't construct an index that way. Of it course, I I get it. You wouldn't stick all of your money, but but here's the but it, it, here it is beating everybody. Yeah, relentlessly. I mean, the thing the thing that I think often gets lost in just general market conversations is like, it doesn't have to be black or white. You know what I mean? Like, you can have a portfolio that's just say eighty percent beta and twenty percent hardcore deep value. Like that's a much that what's that? It underperformed. Yeah, but that's a much better conversation to have than now I'm going to do trend following and now I'm going to do momentum and now I'm going to try value and now I'm going to try growth at a reasonable price. Like that's just a way to just drive yourself absolutely mental. The other thing to, it's important to remember is that the S&P 500 is basically the best performed kind of asset class in the world. If you did, huh? if you had international exposure or you had exposure to other asset classes, you've basically underperformed that, which you can get for for basis points. So everything looks stupid compared to just being long the market at this point, mm-hmm. which which has historically been the time when it's probably important to do other things besides just being long that, that index. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fully with you. I think like I am a big advocate for uh, not going all in on US stocks. And I've been saying that, you know, I've, I've been, I mean, that's probably one of the hills that I don't think I could change my mind on 
that like global diversification makes sense. I, I think it's very – and I obviously I get the reasons why the US has outperformed but I don't necessarily know that I think that's a reason that it's going to continue to do so you know, in perpetuity. It's it, it's hard to know whether what you're looking at is secular or cyclical, which I guess is always the the question at the peak of every bull market is is this time really different or is this is this not? And the, the answer has historically been no, it's not different. But yeah, maybe, but maybe, maybe, but maybe it is. <laughs> but and I don't I don't dismiss that as a possibility that that truly maybe there are structural changes that make this time different, which is why investing is so freaking hard because in real time it can make us look like idiots, and we could look back in ten or twenty years and be like. Of course it wasn't different that time. We're, we're idiots. The Cape was 32 in the United States. It was 13 in Europe. Of course it wasn't different. What do you – you know? But like I'll tell you today that I just don't know. Um, but I but I, I don't think it's different enough that I want to go all in on US stocks, particularly today. Well, equally, you could look back and say, well, it really was a winner-take-all type economy. The, the internet had changed everything. If you got big, you just never got – there was no way that anybody could catch up to Facebook. It was so well entrenched. Netflix was so far ahead. Uber's so far ahead. It's just impossible yep. to compete with them, and that's the way it's going to be. So people would say, oh, well, uh, General Motors was 15% of the market, and look what happened. All right, um, but Patrick O'Shaughnessy was on a podcast recently with somebody saying that people are always looking for the next Amazon, and maybe maybe that's just a dumb thing to be searching for. Maybe the next Amazon is Amazon. Not, not that it's going to continue its performance, but like maybe this is it, and maybe the rules of the past, like that these companies get replaced, I mean that's probably going to happen, but but maybe it doesn't. And maybe we should stop looking around the corner worrying, you know, think about what's going to disrupt Amazon. Again, these are all things that could look ridiculous in hindsight. I guess where I'm at is I just – I don't have too strong of, a, of an opinion. So I would uh, be inclined to listen to the global portfolio. I think as hard as it's been for uh, investors this sort of last decade, I think it's been great to be a consumer because these – like oh, yeah. catching a cab sucked. And Uber yep. Uber's such a better experience than catching a cab. You know, I remember having to – rent movies and you know get the get the vcr hope that the 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 cassette was actually in the box and it wasn't just like one of those empty boxes you know when you're a kid you go to the maybe you're too young for vcrs but no 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 so you would you would you would walk around blockbuster for 40 minutes you're like oh i don't want anything i mean now you scroll for 40 minutes on netflix but at least you're home while you're doing it right but there's there's not a there's not a limit to the number of times that someone can borrow out the cassette either so you can right. you can watch yeah, it no, at the same time the other person's got it out. These companies are, are great. Could you imagine what life would be like without Google? No, it's impossible. It's so good. Facebook too, you know, for for, for stalking old friends and for things like that. Although I sort of I think that I think I saw this a statistic that people are using it less and less, which is kind of interesting. I don't know what the outcome of that is. They're all, they're all migrating over to Instagram, which it owns anyway. You know what's weird about that? I hate Facebook. Um not necessarily just the platform, which I think is pretty toxic, but I guess I don't like the people that post on Facebook. It's the same people over and over. And I don't know what it is, but when you see a Facebook post with a caption, you're like, ah, I hate that person. But when you see that person on Instagram, it somehow feels less offensive, and I don't know why. Maybe because it's less political. There's sort of more uh, – it's just pictures of – I mean, it might yeah, well just pictures maybe. of my kids. It's just a much different experience. I don't have Facebook on my phone, but when I open the Instagram app, I never find myself getting angry. Yeah, I just don't open the Facebook app. That's the that's the secret. Just delete it off the phone. But use Instagram. It's great. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, it's interesting that there's this phenomenon where companies go public later. Sort of seem to collect uh, increasing levels of um, VC money. 
so they come, where, where previously they would have come out as small caps and then grown to become successful large caps now they sort of they list and they're like facebook massive when it lists mm. like uh, uber will be when it lists massive when it lists do you think that that has sort of impacted the returns to small cap stocks is that i i don't i don't know that i buy that because i think that's certainly the the mega ipos is a structural change but there are still a lot of small companies ipoing and if anything we just had a late bubble in the 90s where companies were getting listed that had no business going public and so i think that it's probably not a bad thing for the investor that there's less uh less of these junky companies to pick from and so i don't think that oh the wilshire 5000 is now uh 3000 stock i don't think that's like a, a a big thing that i'm worried about so have you released any episodes yet yeah i put chris coles came out yesterday that guy is that guy is uh, out there. Yeah, so Chris is a really old friend of mine. We lived in yeah. the same building in Santa Monica. No shit. Oh, I think I told I, we might have spoken about this. That's how I met him. And I were, listened to him on uh, Patrick's podcast, and I was like super intrigued. And then he said something that I was like, "Wait, what? He's got some." He's <laughs> Chris got is some, a genius. He's got some outside views. Dude, he's, he was in he was in Santa Monica in this building, and basically we used to drink a bottle of wine every night, and he'd talk about volatility, which is how yeah. I sort of I not that I understand it, but like I I had zero understanding, and talking to him gave me some understanding. So it sort of it it vastly improved the um, just because he's so smart. But he has these like he's moved to Texas because the uh -huh. to avoid the the taxes in in Santa Monica, and he's gone from like you know he was he was running he made some money as a he was working at Merrill as like a, some sort of stru structuring guy because he was super, you know, really good at building these models and things like that. Yeah, he's obviously got like a brilliant quant mind. And he was trading VIX. Like VIX had just been invented. And he, he, he says on my podcast, he was like 20% of the VIX volume some days, like just his PA. That's how small VIX was. That's not how big he was. That's the wow. point he's making. But he's like now, he's got a $350 million portfolio now. And oh, he's wow. No, Did he's you no, nowhere near that size. Did you did the podcast go live? Yeah, when it's yesterday, so I posted it yesterday. Okay, I'll listen to it. He said on with Meb, I think that Warren Buffett is the greatest short vol trader of all time. Well, that's that's his yeah. So he thinks that basically there's two asset classes: long vol like, and short vol. Right. I think that's a bit out there, but he's definitely entertaining. But value, like, there's a there's a good argument that value is a short vol strategy, and I think that he says that he says that he says that value is the safest short vol strategy. In the idea <laughs> that you know, these things blow up, volatility spikes. So you go in and you buy the equity. Worst case scenario, equity goes to zero. So you can't lose, I mean, unless you leave it, but you, you can't lose more than equity at zero. So what does his fund do? It's crisis alpha. So he uses volatility. So he's in, he's in uh, VIX futures and options. And basically what he's trying to do is deliver, when, when the market crashes, he's going to try, it's like a Taleb Spitznagel type. Yeah portfolio but for the rest of the time he's he's looking at the vix term structure and it, you know it gets out of shape and it moves up and down in all these weird ways and he's trying to arbitrage that term structure to, so, it, so let, it's not let, losing money so when it bleeds so oh so it's not designed to lose money every year no well it, he i think he's basically either broken even or he's slightly ahead after fees since he launched in 2012 with no big volatility event so I would I would pay for a strategy that could lose two percent a year, but when the market's down thirty five, this is up fifty. Like I think everybody would pay for that, right? Well, 
it, that's that's what he's that's what he's trying to do. Like he's he's trying. I think he's trying to hedge the market. So when the market, so what he said, crisis self free distinguishes from a tail event. So he says basically when the market's down ten percent, he's not going to do much. Yeah, that's nothing because that's how he's structuring. But if the market goes down twenty, then he should have returned twenty and sort of to. Beyond that, he's trying to match basically what the market does down. Is there any going is there any is there any risk that he can't deliver what he's trying to do? Well, that's the conversation that, that I've had with him many times. That because like, imagine like he just fucking swings and misses. He's, that would be a problem. He's aware of that though. Like for his his business risk is that he's not so basically just has to be long the front month volatility for that to pay off, and that's what he does. Like he's focused on he's always long that front. He's long some way of being long that front month. But then okay. he's to the extent that he can do it, he's hedging the back. So he's never like he's not. It's not an alpha strategy. He is sort of tr- he is going to lose money in that front month, but he's trying to lose less and less by being smartly positioned through the term structure. But so if you have that like whatever five ten percent of your portfolio, like I could get behind that totally. I don't, I don't know if you'd want to put as much of that in, but yeah, it's something like that. I don't think yeah. you need as much as that in there. Oh yeah, but he's okay. he's got like he's. There are lots of different ways that he structures. So you can you can have a managed account with him, and basically he can use what's in your managed account, and because it's a future strategy, he can hedge what you've got in the account. So you could have you could be long whatever you're doing in the ordinary course. You know, you long a hundred million dollars of the market somehow, and he needs like one or ten million dollars in premium to cover the hundred million in notional. Oh, so it could be that small. So why? All right. So for institutions, that probably makes a buttload of sense. So he's like that $350 million is mostly institutions who come in for like 75 or 100. That's crazy. All right, good for him. Mate, he's so smart. He's like, he does have this, uh, he's got this, um, he's got this very out there mind, which I kind of like. Like, I like talking to someone <laughs> out on the fringes and like, well, he, oh, he, the thing that got me, he, when he said that Dennis Rodman was the best basketball player ever. Right. <laughs> I was like, okay, I've never heard that one before. But it's smart because he says on yeah. that team, like, you've got all these superstar, offensive players and he's just recycling the ball and getting it back to them and he's recycling it at like twice the rate at anybody else feeding it back to superstar shooters like that's that's going to improve the results of any team just because yeah, he's rebounding so strong so um thank you for having me this is great just before we go uh if somebody wants to get in contact with you what's the best way to do that um i guess at michael batnick on twitter and uh your director of research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Yep, we're a Berkshire Hathaway subsidiary. <laughs> Michael Batnick, thanks very much. All right, Toby, thanks for having me on. Pleasure.